0: morning, we've got a good crew. If you need a lesson, if you'll raise your hand, they'll pass them out. While they're doing that, uh, uh, I want to... Yeah, we've got some down here in need, Mark. Thank you. Um, tell you about something. Uh, a number of you have asked me before. In fact, I had lunch with Steve Taylor, who usually sits somewhere here. And uh, asked me... Uh, I had lunch with Steve last week, and, and he said, well, tell me about how you came to know God and, and how you got involved... And what drove you to where you stand up and teach about the Bible every Sunday? And I was uh, delighted to tell him part of the story, and I want to tell you all part of the story as well. Uh, I moved to Lubbock, Texas when I was in the seventh grade, in in the middle of my seventh grade year. And I went to church at the Broadway Church of Christ in Lubbock. And it was a wonderful church with several, I don't know how many people, but it looked to me like thousands. Um, uh, There were a lot of people there. And uh, we had, um, it was the Broadway Church of Christ, and we had a preacher named Joe Barnett. We called him Broadway Joe. And um, we didn't understand why, but I think it ultimately was more my dad than, than the we. But growing up around our house, it was always Broadway Joe. We held him in great high honor because he was one of not only the most polished speech, speakers and preachers in the world, but he was absolutely hilarious in a very deadpan manner. But he was also very serious about what he did and what his purpose was in life. And I can tell you as an 8th grader, which would have been the first January I sat in that church, he gave a sermon right around January 1st and said, Are you making New Year's resolutions? And in that sermon, he challenged us old and young alike. And that was the phrase he used, old and young alike. Because I thought, well, I'm young. He's talking to me. And he challenged us not to let a day go by that year that we did not read the Bible. And spend time with God and his word. And he says, it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. I challenge you because that will make a difference in your life. So I made a resolution that new year that I was going to read. It might be just one verse because I couldn't stay awake any longer. Or it might be that I found myself in bed remembering, oh yeah, I never read the Bible today. And so I just get it out and find Jesus wept so I could get that one verse out of the way. (laughs) It might be, you know, any number of different things. But I made that commitment, and I can honestly say that I kept that commitment and renewed it every year uh, for, for decades. Um, I fell off the wagon finally <laughs> about uh, 12 years ago. But um, I still try, but I'm not as legalistic about it as I was for most of my life. That man made a huge difference in my life in turning my heart to Scripture and my heart to God. And he is here to visit this morning. His name's Joe Barnett. Joe, would you stand up, please? Any, any, I, I, I even, I, I, I remember some of his sermons. I mean, I'm 44, and I can remember these sermons from when I was in junior high school and high school, and can tell you he had one of the best sermons on Hebrews 11, which is running the race, which would fit wonderful on Coach's Day um, of of anybody I know, and and I remember that sermon so well, laying aside every weight and and running the race. So anyway, he is one of the reasons that I get to stand up here and speak with you, because he's one of the five influential people in my life that God moved in there, outside of my family, to, to uh, direct me where I am today. And so it's an honor for me to have him here, and if I'd known he was coming, I'd have practiced. <laughs> okay, for you who may be visiting, uh, this is the biblical literacy class. This came to us about two years ago. A decision to teach a class that says let 's address questions about the Bible, where did it come from? Why is it authentic? Why is it reliable? Who wrote what? Who decide what books in there and what 's not, and who decided what order to put them in anyway? I mean who decided first Thessalonians is coming before second Thessalonians because neither one of them have first and second in their title. And so we made a decision to, to put a class together that not only addresses those questions, but starting with Genesis 1-1, works its way through the Bible in an effort to pull out the major storylines, the major doctrinal points, the major places where history has hinged on Scripture, and let's become biblically literate people. And that's been the goal of this class. We are right up against the two-year anniversary, and we've made it up to 2 Thessalonians today. Uh, uh, So, with that, let's go into 2 Thessalonians. We covered 1 Thessalonians last week and the week before. I'm not going back into a lot of the background material behind this, the church at Thessalonica, Paul's second missionary journey. All of that's in the materials that you got from 1 Thessalonians. If you don't have that handout... Philip will certainly have them available, and we're still trying to get this stuff put together in a comprehensive manner. But in the 30 minutes we've got, let's go through 2 Thessalonians and let's look at it. First of all, I will ask you this. What's the difference between 2 Thessalonians and 1 Thessalonians? There are a lot of similarities. Uh, Both were written by Paul and Silas and Timothy, who were the three individuals that Acts tells us about on the missionary journey in the church of Thessalonica. So they've got a lot of similarities from the way that they're written, the style that it's written have some similarities, some differences. We do know that the books were written close in time. You can tell that by reading them. They address much of the same issues. The Thessalonica church was a church where Paul was stolen away in the middle of the night because of the the community uproar over his presence. And you can tell that Paul had never finished the core doctrine he wanted to teach these folks. And I think, based on the reading the letters, that what Paul was in the middle of was explaining how Jesus would come again in the day of the Lord. And so he's been trying to explain that to the Thessalonicians. He gets rushed out in the middle of the night. They don't have email and internet resources to, hey, Paul just left, you know, put it out in the prayer chain. And so everybody's wondering what's going on and what's gossip and what's not. And maybe the day of the Lord came and that's what happened to Paul. And who knows what's going on? And so Paul has these letters that he sends back to the church and he gets uses Timothy as a messenger in part to bring news of the church to clarify a lot of the things that were going on uh, uh, as far as his teachings on the second coming of Jesus. So both of these letters were written close in time. They were written during the second missionary trip, but there is a bit different style. Second Thessalonians is a little more impersonal and if you read it in the Greek, it would read a little more formal than 1 Thessalonians. And scholars, some scholars like to point out there are ten words used in 2 Thessalonians that Paul uses nowhere else in the rest of his writings. And from this, scholars, certain scholars, have decided maybe Paul didn't write 2 Thessalonians. Now, as part of our biblical literacy class, I want to address that because as we go through other epistles of Paul, there is scholarship questioning of whether or not Paul actually wrote them or whether someone wrote them in honor of Paul, or, or in memory of Paul, or claiming to be Paul. And so I think part of our biblical literacy class in fairness needs to be to address that. The main reason that folks believe Paul did not write 2 Thessalonians, and when I say folks, it's a minority of scholars, not most. The main reason those scholars think it is the difference in style. Now, who's got their hand out? Hold your hand out up. Anybody saved? Anybody been here for two years other than me and my wife? Okay, a few of you. Um, if you go back and you look at the handouts that I wrote for you in Genesis, you're going to find a little different style. You want to compare my outline today and my lesson today to what I did two weeks ago. And I'm going to use some different vocabulary. You'll find that I wrote these at different stages in my life. During some of them, I wrote them when I was fat and happy. During some of them, I wrote them when I was dieting and miserable. And you'll see it there. During some of them, I wrote them when I had all the time in the world to do it, and I sat and I thought about it, and I reread my draft, and I made sure that that I knew the difference between that and which. There are other times where I wrote them absolutely, uh, I I won't say at 6 a.m. Sunday morning, but there are a few that were coming off the word processor at about 11 o'clock Saturday night, as Philip can attest to, because he was making the copies at 6 a.m. Sunday morning. And you you just do what time allows. The, the, the fact that there's a difference in some style, and, and I, I, I'm not a Greek scholar. I'll confess that now. But I took four years of the stuff, okay? And I'm telling you, as a four-year Greek student, the style didn't look that different to me. So... I don't mean anything. The Greek scholars can, that, that, that read Greek out the wazoo can say there's a difference in the style, but it's not that significant. It's not like the difference between reading Shakespeare's Hamlet and Dune Buggy Baby uh, uh, written by the Harlequin Romance Club. Okay, It's not a huge difference in, in, in style. And, and uh, I would add to it that you've got to remember Paul typically didn't write his letters himself. The letters were dictated. Uh, If you go back to the introduction I did on the Galatians outline, you'll remember I talked about an amuensis, which was the secretary. And there was a Greek shorthand because there were people who got paid the big bucks to be able to take dictation in Greek and then come back and write the letter later. And so you've got Paul and Silas and Timothy and who's saying what and who's chipping in the few words that maybe Paul doesn't typically use in his vocabulary. It may have been Silas saying, hey, tell them about this and this, you know, who knows? You, you can't look at something like that and write off authorship and integrity of the Bible just on, on, on such small little matters. I think those folks who believe this is written by someone else have a different agenda that's driving what they're teaching. So for our purposes, we see here a different style. The only other thing we see that's that different is there's more eschatology. you got to say the word, eschatology, because that is our theological term of the day eschatology it is really from two greek words eschatos is the greek word that means last and ology comes from the greek word logos it means the study of the logos doesn't. logos means word but our ology ending so eschatology means the study of last things so if you like to study end times and that's your thing and you're real into it you're studying eschatology And you can sound really uh, uh, religiously educated if you use that term. And so, you know, next time you're at the supper table and you've got some guests visiting, you can ask them what their views are on eschatology. And I'm sure that'll get you a lot of friends. Um, 38% of this second book is eschatology. Um, 18 out of 47 verses. So Deal with the end times. And so it's a, it's an interesting book from that perspective. I've divided the book up in a little outline here. Uh, we're going to follow through with this outline. Instead of having points for home, which I do generally at home, we're going to build them in as we go along. So pay attention and let's look at 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1 has Paul's greeting and prayer. It's written in a typical letter fashion. If I were writing Becky an email, I would say, Becky, or, or sweetie, or cutie pie or whatever i would address her as and then i would sign off at the end as um me or not cutie pie <laughs> or Maybe, sweetie, one day or something. I don't know. But but you know, we have typical. If we're writing formal letters, we have a typical form we follow of the addressee and what it's to and the date. They didn't put dates then, but they had a very specific outline that we've used. Again, go back to the first letter we looked at, Galatians, and you'll see that outline there. And Paul follows that outline in this Thessalonican letter. So he starts out in chapter one with his greeting, but after that, he talks in a uh, he gives a prayer. And he talks around the prayer. Now, if you're reading this in the Greek, the first 10 verses or so is only two sentences. Paul was, this is another reason I think Paul wrote it, that guy had run on sentences like crazy. One of these, like eight verses is a sentence, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on, and and then he took a breath, and the guy put a period and started the next sentence as he was taking the dictation. So Paul starts out, but what he says in this long sentence that clearly so flooded his mind, he didn't pause to stop in the middle, was a prayer of thanks... For the ever-growing faith and love of the Thessalonians. They had faith. and They had love. But Paul was thankful that it was growing more and more and more. Yeah, I get scared to death in our age that in the world's eye, No, strike the world. Maybe in the world's eyes. In Americans' eyes, the mark of a conservative, religious Christian is harshness, one-wayness, my way or the highway, holier than thou, I'm going to heaven, you're going to hell. And I think that makes our Lord cringe because I think our Lord's mark of a Christian is faith and love. And it scares me to death that we are painted, and a lot of this is not fair, it's, it's what the media has done with, with Christians, but, but we need to be sensitive in all of our interactions with people to be people of faith and love. And let people see the love that we have for others. You know, as the coach was saying this morning, not just love for the players. Let them see it. It's faith and love that causes Paul to say, I'm thanking God that this is growing more and more and more in you. And so this thanks to God is good. Now, you can compare that to no growth. I remember Joe Barnett said this, and I'd love to know if he remembers half the things he said. I remember Joe Barnett gave an illustration in a sermon one time. And... I don't remember exactly how he did it, so I'm going to co-opt it a little bit. But in my memory, this is how it happened. He said, uh, the, you hear about the fella who got his, out of his truck with his wife at church, and they were walking in, and they saw some young high school couple who were just sitting. This is back four bucket seats. You all remember bench seats? Sitting right up next against each other. And the wife looked at the husband and said, honey... Look at that, they still sit nuzzled up next to, they sit nuzzled up next to each other, and we don't. What happened? The husband looked at her and said, "Well, I didn't move." <laughs> he was driving. And the, the point that Joe made in that story was, if you're not as close to God as you used to be, you can always know confidently who moved. That's right? Because God's not pulling away from you, and he never will. And Paul's prayer and Paul's hope is recognizing that we never stay the same. His prayer is, is that we're growing in love and faith. Because that's what draws us closer to God. That's what draws us closer together. That's what draws us closer as families. And so um, uh, there, the, it's also significant to me, and before I move on, when Paul says this, Paul's giving thanks to God that these people are growing in faith and love. There is an interesting little theology twist in there. Paul had great humility at this point in his life. I don't know that he always did. Oftentimes people with great humility had the greatest pride and the greatest falls. And I have no doubt he had great fall on the Damascus Road as he realized he'd been killing the followers of the Lord. But Paul says, for your growth in love and faith, I'm thanking God. Because God's behind that growth. You can't grow in your faith without God's involvement. You can't grow in love without God shining His love on you. The reason we know how to love is because He first loved us. And so without that love, we don't have it. And we don't understand it if you don't understand how to love and you don't understand faith, you, you get it from God. You don't dream it up on your own. So don't, if you're growing in love and faith, don't get prideful. Think, Look how good I'm doing. I'm so much further along than I was last year. I'm feeling pretty good about it. No, you say, thank you, God, for the work in my heart and in my life. And if you're not growing in those areas, you pray, God, please work in my heart and my life. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Paul says then, as he moves through these first ten verses, he says, now, you've got great faith in the midst of your sufferings because the sufferings were intense at this point in time for the Thessalonians. And it's interesting for Paul, when he commends their faith in their suffering, he says that your perseverance, the fact... You see, if you face suffering without faith, then then there's nothing there to talk about. Okay? I mean, get your faith in order. But when you've got suffering and you've got faith, by definition, if your faith sustains through the suffering, you have what's biblically called perseverance. And Paul says, I commend you for your perseverance because your perseverance shows that God is at work. See, if you've got suffering and you crumble under it and you abandon God and you abandon everything that that makes sense in your life... Then there's nothing that's worth talking about except getting your life back together. But if you have suffering and your faith in God and your trust in the Almighty and your belief and conviction that He holds you in His hand and that He walks with you through this, if you face your suffering with that, the Bible says what grows out of that is perseverance, it's an ability to stand with God. In the midst of sufferings and trials and heartaches, and that perseverance shows God 's at work in you because you don't get it without God working. So, so this is a, a something that if you're going through suffering, you hold on to your faith and just know confidently, know confidently that God is at work in your life in the midst of the suffering, because He is. Suffering is not something that God wishes in, in the sense that God didn't, God didn't make the world for tsunamis to wipe out hundreds of thousands of people. The tsunamis happen. The evil of an Adolf Hitler happens because we live in a fallen world. See, God made the world to be perfect. And He made Adam and Eve in a perfect garden. And, and that's the way it was to be. But when man sinned, not only did man fall from God, but the world itself came under a curse. And it's no longer a Garden of Eden where you get to eat all those wonderful growing fruit. Now it becomes a place where if you want to eat, you've got to get in the thorns and the thistles and figure out how to do it. And childbirth starts hurting. See, this is the curse that was pronounced. And so we live in a world that's not the way God designed it. Don't let someone come up to you and say, well, this can't be a God-created world. Look at the tsunamis. Look at the volcanoes. Look at all the tragedies that happen." Those show the biblical view that this is not a perfect world anymore. We live in a fallen world that will cause suffering both because of the world itself and because of the evil that's in it. And the Christian response of faith is to recognize that suffering. Don't be surprised by it. It is part of the worldview as a Christian It's what we believe is there. It's what the Bible teaches. But the Bible equally teaches it won't always be this way. Amen? The Bible equally teaches it will not always be so. Because there is a day coming when Jesus Christ will return and He will set things aright. And it's the Christian conviction. There is a day coming, Paul writes, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire With his powerful angels. What a day. I used to love singing the old hymn. uh, The trumpet of the Lord shall sound. And time will be no more. Remember that song? I I would love. Or how great thou art. where uh, uh, And Lord haste the day. When the face shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back like a scroll. The trump shall resound. And the Lord. That's not. It is well with my soul. The trump shall resound. I got the words right. I just missed the title. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. That's a person writing that song who understood faith that sustains you in suffering is part of this world. But it won't always be that way. There is a day coming. And so Paul ends this passage saying, may God fulfill every good purpose and act that comes from your faith. Your faith in the midst of the suffering that sustained and perseveres produces good works and acts that glorify Jesus Christ. Because they are a testament to His sustaining power in in not only the suffering, but the ultimate hope and confidence we have that He will come again and He will take His children home. So that's, that's what Paul talks about. Now, how do we plug in? These are our points for home from chapter 1, then we'll move to chapter 2. How do we plug into chapter 1? Number 1, just make a decision. I'm going to grow in faith and love. I don't care if I am 75 years old. I don't care if I'm 14 years old. I'm going to make a decision right now that I'm going to grow in faith and love by the grace of God. I'm just going to do it. And that's going to be part of what I am. And, and, and I, don't, I may not know how, and I may not know all the details, but I'm at least able to say this. Lord, please grow my faith and grow the love that's in me. I want to love better, and I want to be more faithful. Not just in my deeds, but in my beliefs. Make that decision. And you make that decision, and God will honor it. And when He does, give glory to God for the growth Don't puff your chest out and say, look what I've done. You give glory to God. And if someone comes up to you and says, I've noticed you're kinder than you used to be. Your response needs to be, wow, Lord, you did that in in spite of me? That's pretty good. You need to understand it comes from God. Number three, we live in a fallen world. When you see the fallenness around us, even in yourselves, don't write God off. Understand, that's what Scripture teaches is there. That's why we need God. And we won't always live in a fallen world. Let that sustain you in faith. Faith in hard times is perseverance. And God, okay, we did that. Chapter 2, teaching the parousia. Say that one, parousia. You're Greek scholars now, okay? Parousia, this is a two-first Sunday. I mean, two for the price of one. You get two theological term de jure's. Parousia. It's from the Greek word parousia. In fact, I don't think there is an English word parousia. I think that's why when you read it, typically it's italicized because it's a foreign language. You play in Scrabble, you play parousia, gets challenged, it's not in there, don't blame me. I'm telling you it's Greek, Okay. But it's a word that's used in theology. And if you're reading a theological book, or if you're reading a book for, for uh, uh, folks who are past, you know, just basic... Uh, uh, Tim LaHaye may not use it in his Left Behind books, okay? It's not a novel word. But if you're reading any book that's serious about discussions of the end times or eschatology, they will use the Greek word parousia. The Greek word parousia means arrival. It means a coming. And when it's used in theology, it's talking about the second coming of Jesus. So if I say, are you ready for the parousia? You're going to say, if you'll hold the onions. No, no. Uh, you're going to say, the parousia, uh, that's the second coming of Christ. Am I ready for the second coming of Christ? Okay, okay, okay. Parousia is a term that Paul uses several times here in 2 Thessalonians. So it's a good term to keep in the back of your brain, even if you forget later. But salt your conversation with it at work this week and just see the reactions you get as it becomes part of your your being. You know, when someone comes into a meeting, you can say, Well, welcome to parousia. And I said, "What's that?" Oh, sorry, it's Greek for the fact you just came into the room. Um, it's okay, that's fine. I can skip these. Um, the day of the Lord had not yet come. See, the Thessalonians had a problem. Some of the Thessalonians thought Jesus had already come back, and they'd missed it. The Parousia, the second coming, it already happened, and they were sleeping, or they'd been on vacation. Or they were watching TV and they'd missed the second... cut. That would be a major drag. If you were suffering and your confidence and faith was Jesus was going to come again and deliver you out of it, and then you started thinking, well, maybe He already came and I just missed it, that's a major problem. Now, we don't think that way because the Lord hadn't come back in the last 1970-plus years, so we're used to a little delay. But if you go back in 50 AD when Paul wrote this, the Lord had been gone for 20 years and they thought he was coming back pretty soon. They didn't know it was going to last another 2,000 years. Peter hadn't written his letter yet where he said, A day with the Lord's like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. And it's not that he's just dawdling, it's that he's patiently waiting for everyone who's going to come in to come in. They didn't have Peter's letter. They're thinking, The Lord's coming back. That was the teaching. Make it through this suffering. Jesus is going to come redeem you. Well, what if he came and I missed it? Remember, they didn't have the fullness of teaching that we've got in the Bible. That's why Paul's writing this is to further explain to him. He said, the day of the Lord has not come yet. Before the day of the Lord comes, you're going to have a lot of rebellion. and You're going to have the man of lawlessness. Now, who's the man of lawlessness? Paul says he's someone who's going to set himself up as God. But yet, at the whole time he's claiming to be God, he opposes everything that's godly. He's going to be a part of false miracles and signs and fakery and chicanery. Paul says lawlessness itself is already at work, but the man of lawlessness hasn't come yet. Now, who's the man of lawlessness? Well, some say the Antichrist. Uh, the first person to say that was a guy named John Chrysostom, who wrote in the late 300s, and he did a number of commentaries on Paul's epistles. And in one of them, he said the man of lawlessness has to be the Antichrist. Before that, and even after that, other people thought it was other folks. They thought it was Nero, the Roman emperor. They thought it was Roman emperors in general. At the time of the Reformation with Martin Luther, there were a bunch of people who thought it was well, actually post-Martin Luther, but right, they thought it was the Pope or the Papacy. Um, I, I figure it's the Antichrist, but this is all talk of eschatology. And I don't know the absolute answers on this stuff, but I will tell you what I do know. That the man of lawlessness is going to come back, as Paul said. Or he's going to come, as Paul said, before the Lord comes back. Now, what does that mean and what details? I'm not belligerent on the point, though I can be glad to express my opinions. But I will tell you this, the Lord had not come back yet because when he comes back, I'm going to know it. And that's the assurance that I have from Paul here. I have confidence that when the Lord Jesus comes back, and Paul has confidence, merely by his breath and the... By the way, remember, what's the word breath? Spirit, same word in the Greek. By his spirit, by his breath, and by the splendor of his coming. That alone will overthrow Satan and everything Satan represents and works for. The Lord Jesus is, you know, it, we, we, we don't want our children. I've got two of my daughters up here sleeping on the front row. We don't want our children. I'm just joking. They're awake. Becky's asleep. We don't. And Joe. Um, we, don't, we don't want our children We don't want our children growing up thinking that Satan is the opposite of God. Because in terms of goodness and evilness, yes, they're opposed. But Satan is not just the negative of God the positive. If God's a positive 10, Satan's not a negative 10. Satan doesn't have God's power. He doesn't have God's knowledge. He doesn't have God's might. He doesn't have God's control. And he certainly doesn't have our future in his hands. As our Lord does. So be encouraged, Paul says. You may not understand the intricacies of evil and why it's happening in your life. You may not understand exactly when the Lord is coming back or how, but you can know this. God is in control and He will return. And He will return in victory. And of that, Paul says, you can be confident. So while you're waiting, go ahead and be sanctified by the Spirit. Sanctified means growing in holiness. Being made more and more holy by His Spirit. Spirit is the same word as breath. Remember, Jesus' breath is going to throw Satan away. Jesus' spirit, that's also what needs to be sanctifying us right now. God, may Your Holy Spirit sanctify us, grow us in more holiness. I grew up wishing that the Holy Spirit would give me miraculous spiritual gifts. I was real interested when I was in college in the Holy Spirit because I wanted the gift of healing. I wanted to be able to walk down the street and have that guy looking at me with one leg saying, would you please give me some money? And instead of giving it to him, say, uh, silver and gold have I none, but what I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk and have the leg miraculously grow right there. That's not what this is about. The Holy Spirit is not there so Mark Lanier can walk around healing people. If it was, I'd be a televangelist instead of a lawyer. there are some good televangelists and there are some good lawyers, Uh, but (laughs) I've never met a good televangelist who is a good lawyer. Anyway, the, uh, the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is not to make me into some great miracle worker. We have a miracle worker. His name is Jesus and he doesn't need me helping him there. The purpose of the Holy Spirit that I need to be seeking in my life and you need to be seeking in yours is to help us be sanctified or grow up in Jesus. That's what he's there for and that's what we need to be looking for. So that's what Paul says. Now, how do we plug into chapter 2? Jesus will return victorious and don't worry, you won't miss it when he comes. So in the meanwhile, live holy. Live holy. Now, I'm going to take a political time out here. James Watt, who remembers him? He did not invent the light bulb. <laughs> James Watt was Secretary of the Interior for a while before his uh, outlandish statements got him fired under Ronald Reagan. James Watt, as Secretary of the Interior, had a mission. The purpose of the Secretary of Interior is to protect our nation's natural heritage. They're in charge of our national forests and things like this. Okay? James Watt gives this speech... And, and this is James Watt's view of our environment. God gave us these things to use. After the last tree is felled, Christ will come back. So it doesn't matter. Let's cut down all the timber. Let's burn all of the fossil fuels up. Let's just pollute the dog out of the world because this world's going to be gone anyway. And once we've got it so polluted, no one can live on it. The Lord's coming. I'm a Christian. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. That's not what Paul's talking about when he says live in anticipation that Jesus is coming back. (laughs) Paul's not saying rate planet earth and destroy it because it's going to be destroyed anyway and you're helping the Lord do his job. He says to live holy in anticipation. First thing God told Adam was to take care of the earth. And just because the earth has fallen, never took away that command. I can't find anywhere in the Bible where God says, okay, the command I gave you to take care of the earth, uh, uh, it's gone now. Now you can abuse it for your own good. Christians have a responsibility. If we're going to stand up with the name of Jesus Christ, we need to stand up and say, we stand up for responsibility with our earth. That's in twofold. It's responsible to use the things God's given us to help society and to help the world. There's a good basis for using energy. There's a good basis for using science. There's a good basis for using medicine. It's to help alleviate some of the pain and anguish that this world brings on us as a fallen world. But the Christian response is not just that thread. It's also the thread, but let us do it responsibly, taking care and respecting what God has given us. Because we don't know what day he comes back. But when he comes back, we want him to see us living holy. Final chapter. Paul asks for prayer. That's worth stopping on. When the Apostle Paul goes to a bunch of young, one-year-old Christians and says, Would you please pray for me? That causes me to pause and say, Wow, I don't remember the last time I asked someone to pray for me. I always figure, oh, I'm praying about it. If God's going to do it, he's going to do it. Another Joe Barnett statement. I told you I listened. (laughs) Joe Barnett was, we were working on Mission Sunday one year, and he was collecting for some mission work that our church was doing. And he said, I want you to understand, God's going to get his mission work done. It's not that God needs your dollar, and if you don't give it, people are going to hell. He said, God's going to get his mission work done. The question is, are you going to be on his team or not and help him? Because if you're not, he'll find someone else who will. Don't think you're going to thwart the plans of God Almighty. And, and I, I, that has stuck with me because I realized that, you know, Jesus taught us to pray. Becky and I went to a Catholic rosary mass uh, service, dead, whatever it's called, Tuesday night. I'm sure I've just disrespected any of you who are Catholic, and I don't mean to. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> Kelly's laughing. She's Catholic. Um, I know your laugh. Um, I I didn't, I mean, we did the rosary service. They've got the Hail Mary down in those things, if you've ever heard them. I mean, they say it and say it and say it and say it and say it. And, 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 you know, it's significant to me to say, time out. All of us need prayer. If you're married, if you've got a close friend or a sibling in here, or if you're in a men's prayer group that meets on Saturday morning, Find someone that you can just say, hey, would you pray for me? Just give it a whirl. See if it works. Find an area in your life you just need a little help on. You don't have to do one of the big things. You don't have to say, I have a gambling addiction. <laughs> no, you don't. Want to bet? <laughs> Doesn't have to be a big one. Just find something. And have someone pray for you and watch what happens. Paul wanted prayer that the Word of God would spread rapidly, that he, Silas, and Timothy would be delivered from evil. And so with that, Paul gives final instructions on living, which we will close with here as well. First of all, he says, don't be idle. That was another thing they were doing. Well, the Lord's coming back. If the Lord's coming back on Wednesday, you think I'm going to work Monday and Tuesday? I'm finding... The cholesterol is fullest chicken fried steak with cream gravy there is. And I might take up smoking. Can't hurt me. He's coming back Wednesday. The Thessalonians, there were some who were saying, yeah, we don't have to work. God's coming back. And Paul says, not a good excuse. Now, where in the Bible does it say the idle hands are the devil's workshop? It doesn't. I think that's in the Musical, The mu- mu- Music Man. It's in one of those songs somewhere in there. But it's pretty good theological truth. When I am idle and I have nothing to do, that's when I get started doing... You know? Your brain starts going over here. I tell you, this is a sign I'm getting old. You know my biggest problem when I get idle now? It's not thoughts of lasciviousness. It's not thoughts of uh, greed and envy. It's, I want to eat. <laughs> nothing to do. Where's the candy? (laughs) There's something to be said about staying busy. The parousia, the second coming of Jesus does not justify us being idle. Uh, The Puritans took Paul's verse, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. They made it into a work ethic. There was some validity in that. They went too far. We don't have time to talk about it because I've wasted some of our time. But the bottom line, Paul says is you need to be busy and not a busy body. And uh, it's a wonderful pun the NIV makes as they translate it. Paul's pun is sort of there, not quite as clear. But the message is this. Be about God's work. Be about God's work. Work does not mean, when he says work, doesn't mean you have to go earn a wage even. In the Greek thought, there was work, ergos, and then there was thought, and and, and deed, logos. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, word. But work, in the Greek mind, is anything that you're putting yourself to. Any busyness, any activity. And he's saying, "You know, God's got you down here for a reason. Otherwise, you'd just be like a thought process and he'd have put a brain in a bottle and up on a shelf and attached electrodes so periodically you could do something on a computer screen and tell people what you're thinking. He's got you here for a reason. Get to work. Figure out what you're here for. You're here for him to do things. Figure out. You are his hands. You are his feet. You are his mouth. Do it. And that's what he says. So how do we plug into this? Ask for prayer before it's an emergency and you desperately need it. So just give it a try and stay busy. Work is healthy. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for the writings that you've given us in in our Bibles and the different ways you've communicated in stories and and in history and in poetry and, and in letters like we had today to look at. It is my prayer that you will bless every person here today and that everyone here through the power of your Spirit, will grow in faith and love. Bring us back together again soon, Lord. In Jesus we pray, amen.